0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Freedom under grace. We're at this uh, point in the book of Romans, over down into chapter 6. We've been studying this book for several months. Remember, the very first week of our study, we saw. The theme of this book, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel or the good news about Christ. It's the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. And it's accomplished start to finish by faith, by trusting God. And we saw that this book about the good news, gospel means good news. He starts by talking about the bad news. He talks about sin and how every single human being is under the power of sin and we're all guilty before a perfect God. And we can't lower the bar on God's standard. But then he talks about salvation that's available through Jesus Christ, and it's not through works, it's not like religion, where you gotta be a good person and maybe God or the gods will accept you, but it's through placing your trust in Jesus Christ, admitting that you don't deserve his good favor, and that's when he grants you forgiveness and eternal life and adopts you into his family forever. But God doesn't just save us for something to happen in the afterlife. He also wants to transform you right here and now. And that's why Romans 5 through 8, he talks about spiritual growth. So it's sin, salvation, and then spiritual growth. And this is the greatest section of teaching on spiritual growth all in one place in the New Testament. And so we're spending several weeks learning about how does spiritual growth really happen? How does moral change really happen? The Bible's term for this sometimes is sanctification where God is changing us, our daily actions to be more and more like Jesus Christ in this life. And in Romans chapter six, last week, we spent the first 10 verses seeing that this is really, with spiritual growth, the starting point is you need to know what's already true about you. If you're a Christian, you've got to know. That was a verb we saw repeated over and over again. What's interesting, though, is you know, Paul starts talking about spiritual growth in chapter 5. By the middle of Romans 6, he's 20 verses into his best material on spiritual growth, and he hasn't issued a single command. You know, religion is all about all the things you're supposed to do. And yet, what he's starting with is he's starting with an understanding, a framework. He's trying to explain this dynamic. Your identity controls you behave your behavior. What you do flows from who you are. So if you constantly think to yourself, I'm a person, I'm all alone, I've always been all alone, people are going to reject me at any moment, I'm a loner, that is going to affect the way you interact with people. And if you're trying to get them to love you and you're trying to keep them from running away, you're ironically going to do things that drive them away. And even if you do manage to catch them somehow, you're going to know... It was through great effort on my part, and you're always gonna be wondering, when are people gonna leave me? When am I gonna be alone again? I'm alone even though I'm with people. And what you need to understand is fundamentally, you are not an alone person anymore. You've been connected to Christ. You've also been joined to everybody else who's been connected to Christ. And so we're members of one another. And so fundamentally, at the core, you are not lonely at all. And you need to learn how to live out this new identity. And that's what spiritual growth is all about. What you do flows from who you are. Remember, we saw that the problem was where we started. Our starting point was what Paul calls in Adam. You know, Adam was the first human being. And when, I, when, our, when he and Eve rebelled against God, they spawned a whole race of descendants that had the same problem that they did. They were cut off from God. In Adam, this is you, guilty, dying, a sinner. You can get the audio from a couple weeks ago if you want to know more about this. But, and that other approaches to spiritual growth, they just keep trying to cover up this, this, this guy's problem. He's a guilty, dying sinner trying to put on enough makeup to look like he's not one. And that's not how God works. God works from the inside out. God's change is real, And so what he says is you can be transferred from in Adam to in Christ. And in Christ, he's starting a new humanity where everybody who's in Christ is no longer in Adam. That's who you used to be. You're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And in Christ, you're innocent. You have eternal life guaranteed. You have power for true change. If you could just learn, understand who you are and learn how to unleash that power, that is the key to spiritual growth. And if you're stuck in your spiritual growth, it's because you don't understand this right here, the things we're talking about tonight. And so it's all about knowing what God has done, knowing this, knowing this, knowing this, he said over and over again last week. He said, knowing that when you became a Christian, you became a new creation. You were connected to Christ forever. And that's a bond that will never be broken. And he, and he says, you know, we know that Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead. That's like the starting point for Christianity. But did you know that because you are connected to Christ that you also, you were crucified with him and you were raised to newness of life that the old you is gone, the new you is here and this new you has this new power, this new spiritual power over sin. Get the audio from last week if you want more on that. This is your position in Christ, though. And there's some terminology that we're going to have to know if we're going to understand the Bible's teaching on spiritual growth. Your position in Christ, this is what's true of you no matter what. This is how God sees you. That's never going to change. Once you are in Christ, God sees you as perfect, His child, uh, destined for eternity with Him. Your performance day in and day out will not change your relationship with your Heavenly Father. And that's a very difficult security to accept, but it's very important to accept We need to not confuse that with what scripture teaches is our condition. Your position is never changing. That's how God sees you. Your condition refers to how I'm doing right now. How did I do today? Was today a good day spiritually? Was it not? Did I read my Bible today? Did I pray today? Was I a nice person today? Was I a loving person today? Or was I none of the above? was I, I can't believe the sin that I got into. I definitely did not do anything spiritual at all today. In fact, I don't think I had a single spiritual thought today. There was not a single ounce of love for God or other people in my heart the entire day up until now, and it's like 10 minutes after eight. (laughs) And I call myself a Christian? That can be pretty hard to reconcile that kind of a day with my position in Christ, which hasn't changed at all today. My condition includes my behaviors and my feelings, and those are changing from moment to moment. One moment I'm feeling pretty good about myself, and then I did that thing, and now I'm feeling pretty bad about myself. But then I did that thing, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm all over the place. It's an unstable life living based on your condition. Changes from moment to moment. Spiritual growth is where I become more Christ-like in my condition. You can't become more Christ-like in your position because you're already perfectly Christ-like in your position. Your condition, on the other hand, could use some work. And so, while at the very moment you become a Christian, you are perfect in your position, you're far from that in your condition. And God's got some work to do, and he's not going to let up on that until the end of this life. At the end of this life is when your condition will finally match your position because you'll be glorified and you'll be in heaven. You don't have to worry about the power of sin anymore. And so this is the process we're trying to understand. And whereas humanistic spiritual growth, I look at the rules, I try to follow the rules, I try to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, and I I can pull as hard as I want. I'm not going to get any higher because I'm pulling myself up by my own shoelaces. Then he finally moves on to our response to God's work. Now, because God has done this, you're supposed to do that. That's how this works in the Bible. It's a lot about what God has done, and then it eventually talks about how you're supposed to respond to it. Our response to God's work. But even here, it's not like he's getting into this heavy-duty list of imperatives, of commands. He says, you need to consider this to be true. Believe this. All the things you know, believe it. That's the first command he gives when it comes to spiritual growth. And then, he says, then come to God believing that that's true. Present yourself to God as one who's alive from the dead. Your members as instruments of righteousness to God. There's a presenting to God of of oneself. So again, we're really not even into commands as we would expect. This is still understanding the framework here and believing it and making sure we're good on that. Otherwise, anything we build on top of that is going to be unstable. And so with presenting, my focus is on God and what he says about me. Notice what he says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And these are, another terminology here, we have position and condition already, indicatives. Indicatives, these indicate what is true about you. And so in presenting, he says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. So I'm, I'm focused on God. I'm focused on what God says about me. I'm, I'm different now. I'm alive from the dead. The rest of me is ready and willing to act. Now, it's not a passive thing here. You know, the rest of me, I'm aware of God's instructions, and these are the imperatives of Scripture. These are the commands of Scripture. The imperatives. And so I'm focused on God, what God says about me. The rest of me, I'm aware of the commands. I'm willing and ready to act, but my focus is on him and what he says about me. I'm trusting God to lead me as well. Because I'm focused on him, I'm trusting that he's going to guide me. It's a personal relationship. That's why I present myself to him as someone who's going to use me for his purposes today. And this, this is kind of hard to wrap our minds around. There's your focus and there's something you're aware of. And so if we had a giant eyeball on the screen, we might say, my focus needs to be on the indicatives. This is life under grace, the indicatives. I'm focused on what God says about me. I'm also aware of the imperatives. I know what those are too. But I've got my emphasis right. I've got my order right. Some people, they go so extreme when they say they're under grace. I remember talking to one guy, he says, man, ever since I really understood grace, this guy was a teacher of the Bible. He was a Christian leader and he goes, ever since I understood grace, I've eliminated all commands from my teachings. (laughs) And I thought, I said, well, Paul didn't do that. So, do you think he was not under grace? That's not what under grace means. No, it means my focus is on the indicatives and I'm aware of the imperatives. Under law, and, and so, like, for example, this relationship is throughout the Bible. I never knew about this because I was raised on law teaching. But, here's a sample verse, Ephesians 4.32. He says, forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now, in this verse, what's the indicative and what's the imperative? Well, the indicative is God forgave you. The imperative is forgive each other. Now, under law, I'd be like, Forgive each other. I must forgive. I, I'm a good person. I'm forgiving. That's what I'm supposed to do. And then, you know, I just think of the thing they did to me. I'm like, Oh, they're, mm, a jerk. And you just replay how you've been messed over and how nobody even realizes you're being messed over. And that's like, that makes it even worse. And everybody thinks they're so great and they don't realize that you actually deserve all the credit. And you've actually had it a lot harder and you're really a hero for, for doing as much as you've done considering the circumstances. And here everybody's singing their praises. They always get what's good. They always get a job. They always get a boyfriend or girlfriend. They always get the scholarships. Their parents help them out of school. (laughs) (laughs) And so under law, forgive one another. God forgive you. You tend to underemphasize that part. You forget about that part. But if I think about, well, God has forgiven me so much, so that puts at least what they did into perspective. That shows, you know, I owed God, I was several million dollars in debt to God, and He forgave it all. This guy owes me twenty bucks; he's not going to repay it. Um, All things considered, I'm still ahead on the deal. And so it it puts the other person's thing into perspective. It's that's the role of indicatives is they they help give us motivation. They they explain why we're supposed to do what we're supposed to do. It's the reason behind the command. And what's interesting is the next verse in Romans, our first verse in our passage tonight, he says, sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. What Paul's actually saying, if you're under law, if you live your life focused on the commands of Scripture, ignoring the indicatives of Scripture, focused on your condition, ignoring your position, then sin... You know, you would think the more I focus on the commands, the better I will be able to follow them. But actually, it's the opposite. The more, if if you are under law, sin will become your master. Because the more you focus on these things and grit your teeth and try really hard, the more you'll find yourself falling victim to them. And we'll we'll get even more on that next week. You know, under law, I'm focused on my condition my performance. How did I do today? Did I mess up? Did I not? But it's focused on me and what I did. Whereas under under, under grace, I focus on my position in Christ. But under law, my position is very distant, second to my performance. Look at your prayer life. Where is your emphasis? How much is on what I did, and how much is on my position? Under law, it's what I must do. That's my focus. And, you know, I might be aware of what God has done. But you're getting the order backward. That's not Christianity. Christianity starts with what God has done. And then it gets later to what we're supposed to do in response. Under law, it's how do I compare to other people? If I'm following rules, I obviously can't do it perfectly, but maybe I can do it better than that guy. And, uh, you know, I'm usually selective. I eliminate certain ones that I'm not very good at following, and then I pick the ones that I am good at following. Under law, I'm focused on how I'm falling short. And I'm so sorry, God, and I'm just constantly apologizing to God, and I feel like that's very spiritual, but it's not. That's not what he's saying here. That actually is a result of a a works focus, a law focus, a self-focus, and that is not what he's teaching here in Romans 6. Walking in victory, I think, says it really well. It says, viewing ourselves in our condition leads to defeat. In our condition, we have no way to define ourselves other than our performance and our feelings. And the resulting work's focus will lead to bondage, as Paul warned in Romans 6.14. Condition-focused people also lack gratitude, often feeling sorry for themselves because their circumstances are problematic. If I'm focused on me, what am I going to be thankful for? Me? How awesome I am? That's not that good either. <laughs> But usually, I'm feeling sorry for myself. They're constantly taking their emotional temperature and are rarely satisfied with what they find. This is our problem in spiritual growth. We're constantly taking our emotional temperature and we're rarely satisfied with what we find. At times, it becomes strikingly clear that the truth of our position in Christ means little to us as signaled by the lack of gratitude in our hearts. Yeah, that would be one of the greatest signs of a lack of a position focus. Anytime we feel sorry for ourselves, we must be seeing ourselves in our condition, not in our position. How could you possibly feel sorry for yourself if you really viewed yourself accurately? How are you doing? Well, I'm a lot better than I should be. How's it going? Well, I'm sitting at the right hand of God. That's pretty good. I'm actually somehow innocent, even though I've done so much wrong, I can't even keep track of it all. But Christ died for my sins. I didn't ask him to. I was his enemy. But he loved me and offered himself up for me. You know, any day you wake up and you're not in hell, that's a really good day. (laughs) That's where I should have woken up this morning, in hell, because the wages of sin is death. But thank God the free free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, if you woke up this morning and you're not in hell, you should be singing hallelujah. You should be like, I can't believe I get another day in this world. And I can't believe I'm never going to have to face hell if you're a Christian. We don't appreciate all the good things God has given us. First and foremost, our position in Christ. Our prayers also reflect this condition. focus when we fret and whine about our situation and our feelings. Yeah. We may have little or nothing to say to God about our position in Christ. Yeah, our prayer life should have a lot to say about our position. Seeing the imperative as depending on the indicative separates the Pharisaic Christian from what we might call the resting Christian. A resting Christian is one who depends on God's power for character change and is secure in his or her acceptance during the process. Jesus said, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Psalm 46 says, Be still and know that I am God. Psalm 127 says, For the Lord gives rest to his loved ones. He wants to give you rest, not passivity, not not becoming a do nothing, but resting in his acceptance and also in his power for change. Some teachings today put so much emphasis on the imperatives of Scripture that readers lose all touch with the importance of scriptural indicatives. It's not that they deny the great statements about God's acts on our behalf. Yeah, they would never say that. Instead, the importance of such statements becomes unclear constantly banging away at the imperatives of Scripture without carefully covering and reviewing the basis for such commands, like the gracious gifts of God, creates a legalistic law tone, very far from what we read in passages like Romans 5 through 8. Even though legalistic teachers can quote imperative verses that seem to support their view, they've lost the larger picture. Yes, this is known as lordship theology. The teaching is, yes... Salvation, it's a free gift. You receive it through Jesus Christ. These guys believe in the Bible, but they're like, but you also have to be a really good person if you even want to consider yourself to be one of God's children. Unless Jesus is 100% Lord of your life, you are not even saved. And you should be very fearful. Lots of threats, lots of emphasis on the imperatives of scripture, Lots of you better be a righteous person. I I was raised on this kind of teaching, okay? Going to church, this is all I ever heard. It was not appealing to me. I was pretty surprised when I started reading the Bible and you see a different story, but you know, this sort of teaching, this, this focus on the laws, the rules of Scripture, focus on how badly I'm sinning and trying to do better, you see this, we've even seen this take hold in our fellowship in some pretty significant ways at times in the past. Here's the excerpts from one popular writing from Tim Keller, who I like a lot of Keller stuff, but I... I don't think he's too good on spiritual growth. He says, You know, I found that the practices of the 18th century Methodist leaders, Whitfield and Wesley, have been helpful to me when it comes to getting time with God. He says, Whitfield ordinarily did this sin inventory every night. And he would ask himself questions like this Have I looked down on anyone today? Have I been too stung by criticism? Have I felt snubbed and ignored? Have I spoken or thought unkindly of anyone? Am I justifying myself by caricaturing in my mind someone else? Have I been impatient and irritable? Have I been self-absorbed and indifferent and inattentive to people? Have I avoided people or tasks that I know that I should face? Have I been anxious and worried today? Have I failed to be circumspect or have I been rash and impulsive? Am I doing what I'm doing for God's glory and for the good of others? Or am I being driven by fears, need for approval, love of comfort and ease, need for control, hunger for acclaim and power, or the, quote, fear of man? Am I looking at anyone with envy? Am I giving in to any of even the first notions of lust or gluttony? Am I spending my time on urgent things rather than important things because of these inordinate desires? That's your time with God each night. I don't know if I'd even get to question number 15 (laughs) before just closing my Bible and just realizing what a failure I am and why am I even trying? Man, what a focus on the the rules of Scripture and how I'm not following them. Where do we see any of that in Romans chapter 6? No, it's knowing, knowing, knowing all these things that are true about you. Keller goes on commenting on Romans 6.15. Paul says, we're not under law, but under grace. That verse we just read. But what does that mean as far as having an obligation to submit to God's will as written in his word? Do we still have to obey the law? Absolutely we, need, we turn to the law of God because sometimes we need to do things just because God says so. Some of us simply hate to follow a direction unless we know all the reasons why the direction was given and how it will benefit us and so on. Look, do God's will, not because it's exciting, although it will eventually be an adventure. Not because it will meet your needs, although, you know, it will eventually be a joy. Not because you understand why this is the path of wisdom, although it will eventually become more clear. Do it because he's your Lord and Savior, and you are not. (laughs) Do you notice what's in parentheses there? The indicatives. What's not in parentheses? The imperatives. Obligation. Command. You just need to do it. I mean, it's true. I mean, from one perspective, you can't argue with it, but this is the emphasis here. Imagine a marriage like this where I'm like treating my wife in this way. I'm giving her a list, her a list that says Scott's commands. <laughs> you need to do what I say because I'm the husband and you are not. <laughs> I mean, she might do some things for me but not gonna be real excited about it. It's not going to be the kind of closeness. The relationship with God and spiritual growth, it depends on closeness. It depends on drawing near. We are sanctified in relationship, like the branches connected to the vine. And we're not going to want to be in the vine if the vine has got this like scary judge, you're always doing wrong things. God is the judge. God does need to be respected. But he also wants us to understand the closeness we can have with him and come before him with confidence. Imagine a father like this. Is this the kind of dad you're going to want to listen to or draw close to? Unfortunately, some of us, this was the kind of dad that we had, or we didn't have a dad at all. And that can make it pretty confusing when it comes to spiritual growth. But this is not the kind of relationship that God wants with us, and if you have kids of your own someday, this is not the kind of relationship that I hope you'll have with them. Change happens in the context of closeness, and we can have that with our loving Heavenly Father. Martin Lloyd-Jones, also a guy, I like Keller, I like some of his other stuff, but don't really like him on spiritual growth. He says, it comes to this, unless my life is a righteous life, I must be very careful before I claim that I'm covered by the grace of God and Jesus Christ. You see the threat there. And what is he saying? You have to say your life is a righteous life. What does that mean? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount that he's commenting on here, Jesus said, well, you just need to be perfect like your Heavenly Father's perfect. <laughs> what? You know, part of Jesus' point, he's talking to Pharisees. The Pharisees, they were the religious people of the day. They were, they were like, oh, you need to be as good as us And we keep the law perfectly. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like that guy over there. The problem is, they had reduced the definition of righteousness to something that they could keep. And so Jesus is like, wait, you think it's a big deal that you haven't committed adultery? I say if you've lusted in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. Oh, you think you're sweet because you haven't killed anyone. I say if you're angry with someone in your heart, you're guilty of murder and guilty enough to go to hell. And so, that shuts every mouth before the God who is holy and makes us realize, I need to be perfect. And that drives us to grace. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount, drive us to grace. These guys are saying, you need to have a a perfectly righteous life. And they they say the opposite elsewhere. But this is all just like a, a kind of a threatening rhetoric. You must have a righteous life if you want to claim that you are covered by the grace of God. That's not what Scripture teaches it's because we're covered by the grace of God that we can learn to live a righteous life. And so part of, the, part of my problem with lordship theologians is they, they elim, their definition of sin eliminates about 95% of what the Bible defines as sin. Like ever lusting in your heart. Like ever getting angry with someone in your heart. Like, like Jesus said, the great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Have you failed to do that for one second of today? well, then you're in sin and you need God's grace. They, on the other hand, eliminate most of that. John MacArthur, eternal life is indeed a free gift. Salvation cannot be earned with good deeds or purchased with money. It's already been bought by Christ who paid the ransom with his blood. But that does not mean there is no cost in terms of salvation's impact on the sinner's life, this paradox may be difficult, but it is nevertheless true. Salvation is both free and costly. It's quite a paradox. Let's see, free, not costing any money. (laughs) Costly, having a high price, (laughs) costing a lot. See, where I, where I come from, we call that a contradiction. <laughs> I mean, you could say it's free for me and costly for Christ, but that's not what he means. He says it's free and costly for you, salvation. I mean, imagine you're driving down the street and you see the sign, free beer tomorrow. And you're like, sweet. See, so roll in and you come to the bartender and you're like, dude, give me my free beer. And he says, dude. This paradox may be difficult, (laughs) but it is nevertheless true. The beer is both free and costly. (laughs) Five dollars a pint. (laughs) See, that's what I call false advertising. MacArthur says, Faith obeys, unbelief rebels. The fruit of one's life reveals whether that person is a believer or an unbeliever. There is no middle ground but do you see there's a little footnote there? Let's read the footnote that nobody probably reads. This is not to deny the obvious truth that Christians can and do fall into sin. <laughs> what happened to no middle ground, buddy? <laughs> Which one is it? Your footnote contradicts your note. <laughs> they think this is motivating, like it's going to scare people into being good. It doesn't have that effect. It's not, it's not God's way. And people buy these books by the millions. Christians do. John Oswald, he's talking about Romans 6 here in his book called To Be Holy. This is the theme of the entire sixth chapter. You ready for Oswald's summary of the theme of the entire sixth chapter? You must not sin. <laughs> From start to finish, this is a commandment, this chapter. Ah, <laughs> oh, for sin shall not be your master. He's commenting on our very verse here. He says, what Paul is saying is that sin is an either-or proposition. You cannot be a little bit sinful any more than you can be a little bit pregnant. <laughs> either one, you either are or you aren't. So apparently Oswald is saying that he is not even a little bit pregnant (laughs) or sinful. And there is no middle ground. He says, not only do we need not sin and we must not sin, we dare not sin. And he bellows on like this for the whole book, okay? Acting like, I guess he's implying he doesn't sin, I don't know. And then you get to the end I had to read this book when I was in seminary because our professor thought it was like a great book on spiritual growth. I was just depressed the whole time. (laughs) But I didn't have, I wasn't sharp enough to discern what was wrong with it. I wish I would have had this sort of instruction back then. But here's what he says in the last chapter. He says, you know, our homes are sometimes places of tension and argument. There are failures and shortcomings, even sins. This is as close as he gets to a confession. It's still in the third person. He's like, mistakes were made. (laughs) There are struggles and setbacks. (laughs) To measure our acceptance by God on the basis of absolutely perfect performance and holiness is to condemn ourselves to failure. Okay, what about that whole, you can't be a little bit sinful any more than you can be a little bit pregnant? It sounds like he's saying, actually i got lots of sin in my life. i got lots of problems in my life. But usually you're too depressed by the time you get to the end of the book that you've stopped reading by then. You're just feeling like such a failure. And again, they're, they're quoting Scripture, and there are true things in here, but it's the emphasis. It's the lower definition of sin. That's, so, that's what's so wrong with this stuff. Yes, this is God's way. Sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law but under grace. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? May it never be. <laughs> Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, your slaves are the one you obey? Either of sin, resulting in death, or of obedience, resulting in righteousness. So he uses the imagery of slavery. And you know, Jesus talked about this. Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, that's himself, you'll be free indeed. He came to truly set people free from slavery to sin. And if you're here tonight, um, I I think a lot of us here know exactly what this means, struggling with slavery to sin where we're trying to stop doing that thing and our lives are being wrecked by it and we can't stop. And we feel like we're lacking in willpower and we feel like we've made no progress. Jesus says you're enslaved to sin, but, but I want to set you free and you will be free indeed. He says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient to the heart from that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Notice here, these are past tense verbs. He's talking about a a change that already happened. You passed out of slavery to sin, and you were set free. And you became a slave to righteousness, which is, part of what he's saying is, you're gonna be a slave to something. Make sure you present yourself to the right master. And what God gives you, people are like, oh, I'm free to do whatever I want. Really, are you free to not do that sin? What God gives you is he gives you freedom over sin. He gives you freedom over the destructive habits. And he puts you in a place where you can be used by him, where you can be directed by him, where your identity starts to control your behavior. This verse is a little confusing, but you can see if I highlight these two parts, you were slaves of sin, the beginning of 17, and you became slaves of righteousness. This is the old you and the new you. If we dr- and then he says there's a transition here. You became obedient to the heart, from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. How did we get from old you to new you? Well, becoming obedient from the heart. What, what specifically did we become obedient? What form of teaching was given to them? It was the gospel, the theme of the book of Romans. The power of God for salvation to all who believe. And so receiving Christ was the transition from the old old you to the new you. So you were a slave of sin. You put your trust in Christ, like He thought to do, and you became a slave of righteousness. You went from box one to box two, and you became a Christian. And this, again, is your position, remember. Your position is how God sees you. It will never change. It's unrelated to your performance or your feelings. These are the indicatives of Scripture. But then he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. I think he's saying, it doesn't exactly match up with slaves and masters, but I'm trying to explain it for us humans that don't really understand fully these things. Just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Probably spiritual growth there is what he's talking about. So what's he talking about here? This is not a... This is not who you are, but what you did, right? This is the old you. You went on presenting your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness. This is the new you. He says, now that you are a slave to righteousness, present your members as slaves to righteousness. And the result, this is our goal. We want spiritual growth here. But if you want the goal, if you want resulting in sanctification, you're going to have to present yourself to God, as one alive from the dead, and present your members as instruments of righteousness, as slaves to righteousness. And so we've got to draw a line here between our position and our condition. Verses 17 and 18 were about our position. Verse 19 is about our condition. He says, when you were a slave of sin, you presented your members as slaves of sin. That makes sense. That's who you were. But now there's a repeated action you can take. Now that you're a slave of righteousness... You now present your members as slaves to righteousness. That's what you're supposed to do now. You need to be who you are. And so your condition is how others see you. It changes all the time. It pertains to the imperatives. But this is something we do on a constant basis, presenting my members as slaves to righteousness. And what's very sad is that you can move from box one to box two. You can become a slave of righteousness without moving from number three to number four. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you're going to live like one necessarily. You're going to have to do this this presenting here if you want that result of spiritual growth. That's what Paul is teaching. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from those things of which you're now ashamed? The outcome of those things is death. Remember your old life, how bad it was? I do. It was awful. Shameful. And do you notice we have another indicative here? In fact, in this passage, he's, he's asking, why present your members as instruments of righteousness? He's given us several indicatives. One is right here in this verse, because the old way led to shame and devastation and gave you no benefit. Also, he said a few verses ago, if you don't do this, you'll be a slave of sin because you're slaves of whoever you present yourself to. And he said in verse 18, well, you are a slave of righteousness now, so that's a good reason to do it. He also said you're alive from the dead back in verse 13. He also said you're no longer under law but under grace. There's five good reasons to do this one command that he's giving us in this chapter. Legalists would not notice all the indicatives. They would just say this whole chapter is one big command. You must not sin. But if you actually read it, you notice God's giving us a lot of reasons why we should do this one thing he's asking us to do. And this is so important for spiritual growth. I can't emphasize this enough. Finally, he says, but now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, spiritual growth, and the outcome, ultimately, eternal life. That's where we're all headed. Got to keep our eyes on that as well. That might be another indicative. We're headed toward heaven, so why not Act on some of these truths now. It's another point about our security. Four, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin brings death, but God gives life. Freedom under grace. That's what this part of the chapter is all about. This constant interplay between slavery and freedom and God wants to give you freedom. We're trying to answer the question, why do I matter? God tells us why we matter. God gives us a new identity. We spend so much of our lives trying to really matter, trying to really be somebody, trying to prove ourselves. You know, in in my case, I've struggled with this in a lot of different ways. Um, But one way I've struggled with it is, you know, from a pretty early age, you know, I was younger than everybody in my class, but I was pretty smart. And so I didn't really know how to relate to people in like a normal way. Um, But I would get praise for succeeding in school. And so I channeled a lot of my energy into that. And I would channel a lot of my energy into showing off how good I was at this or how smart I was or whatever. And you can imagine that didn't really make me too popular in my relationships with the other kids. And so I really spent a lot of my life sort of alone, kind of lonely but also really trying to prove myself and trying to kind of demonstrate my competence, demonstrate my abilities. So then I become a Christian. I move into a ministry house with these other Christians, and it turns out I found myself doing a lot of the same things. I wasn't secure enough in my identity in Christ, and so I was constantly correcting other people, showing off how much I knew, Lecturing other people on what is right and what is wrong and correcting them, especially on stupid minor matters of trivia. <laughs> Critical of other people. And I uh, hurt a lot of people's feelings, drove a lot of people away, brought it on over into my marriage. Um, I remember I would, I would sit there and um, I took a lot of identity from how productive I was. And, you know, I was like in school full-time, working part-time, doing a lot. Then I was in grad school and I was working part-time and I was taking seminary classes and then I was working full-time and taking seminary part-time and, you know, I just was doing all this stuff. And then um, I got into a position where my job changed, where I actually I started working for this church as a pastor and I had way less structure in my life. And I found that what I had taken so much of my identity from before, why I matter... When all that structure fell away, I found I wasn't nearly as productive as I was when I'd filled my life up with all these things to keep me going. And so I remember I would sit down to eat breakfast and I would just kind of zone out. And then I would be like, man, where was I even at for the last half an hour? I don't even know what I was thinking about. You know, I I would sit there and it would be lunchtime. I'd be like, what have I even really accomplished today? And uh, I found myself really beating myself up a lot. I found myself taking it out on my wife, being like, well, maybe if you would do more around here, I wouldn't have to do, pick up so much of your slack and I could get my stuff done. And then she's defending herself and I feel, and, and I feel like I'm defending myself against her critiques against me. And so it was just this thing that I kind of carried with me and I, I would have insights and breakthroughs, but part of what I, I've had to realize, and there's been key moments of breakthrough here, Part of what I had to realize was, why do I matter? Is it because I'm the super productive person? Is it because I'm so good at this stuff or is it just because of what God says about me? Why do I matter? Why do I have value? It's not because of my performance or my productivity. It's because of what God says about me. And that takes the pressure off, that takes the gun off the table, And that frees me up to actually love other people, get to focus off myself, and stop constantly keeping mental score of how I'm doing. Presenting your members as instruments of righteousness is not a passive act either. The resting Christian, that's not a passive Christian. You know, you think about something like, you know, I, I present myself to God as one alive from the dead, and we talked about that last week but I also want to present my members as instruments of righteousness. So I might say, God, I'm gonna show up at home church tonight, and I'm, I'm counting on you to use me. And so Andrew Murray talks about, in his book, Working for God, the sorts of things God can use us. He says, look at the great work the members of Christ have to do. It is to minister to each other. We serve one another, we love one another. Place yourself at Christ's disposal for service to your fellow Christians. You say, Christ, here I am. Use me somehow in someone's life tonight. Count yourself their servant. Say, I'm, I'm your servant. You want me to serve them, so I'm counting myself as their servant. How can I serve the people around me, God? Study their interest. Some of us put zero effort into understanding what someone else is interested in, what they might like, what they might feel loved by. And then we wonder why nobody feels loved by us. No, I think about this other person. I ask God, you know, what could I do to build them up, God? Set yourself actively to promote the welfare of the Christians around you. Yes, he says selfishness may hesitate. The feeling of feebleness may discourage. That's a tough one. You just feel weak. You just feel like I just I haven't really done anything all day, all week. I've never really had an impact in anyone's life. I've never really been that spiritual. We feel feeble. And he says, don't be discouraged by that. That's not the truest thing about you. The truest thing about you is what God says about you. Sloth and ease may raise difficulties. Yes, there's the battle with our own flesh, with our own sin nature we've talked about. But he says, ask your Lord to reveal his will and give yourself up to it. Round about you, there's Christians who are cold and worldly and wandering from their Lord. Begin to think what you can do for them. Yeah, if somebody's not very spiritually interested, we don't want to withdraw from them. Now we want to say, God, what can I do? Maybe I can make a difference here. There were Christians that made an impact in my life when I was that way. Very unspiritual, very far from God. Accept as the will of the head, who is Christ, that you as a member should care for them. Pray for the spirit of love. God, give me a spirit of love. Begin somewhere, he says. Just begin. Don't continue hearing and thinking while you do nothing. Yes, we just got to start And trust that God will use us as we present ourselves to him to be used. And eventually, we can reach a point where our new identity controls our actions. Not perfectly every second of every day, but where we find ourselves a transformed person. Where we're becoming who we are. And where we experience the truth of Jesus' promise. If the Son sets you free, you are truly Lord, thanks that we're not um, defined by our most recent performance, that we're not defined by our feelings, but we're defined by what you say about us and that you want to be our rock, our place of refuge, our fortress, God. You want to be um, a foundation for our lives, God. And um, I pray that you would help us, that you'd open the eyes of our hearts for us to really understand this, Lord. And that we would see that we don't matter because we perform well or because of what we did, but we matter because you say we did. And I pray, God, that we, that, that would un- unleash us, unleash the power of our new identity for us to do far greater works than we could ever do under law, Lord, and for us to experience change that would not be possible under law. I pray we would be a fellowship that teaches grace for real, Lord, um, and that um, we would also see the real life change that comes with grace. Amen.